Even when we're on time, I like to dilly-dally instead of just jumping into it. <laughs> That's okay. Uh, welcome to Montreal Sauce, the show where we talk to creators, makers, and friends. Uh, this unfortunate inside voice belongs to me, Chris. Uh, my <laughs> friend and co-host with the platinum vocal cords is Paul. Hello. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> uh, tonight's guest uh, has worked for the Multiple Sclerosis Society of Canada just under 19 years. There she's the director of development, helping to fundraise for the organization. Uh, therefore, you may have heard her on the radio, other podcasts, or seen her on TV promoting MS Society events. Allison Hagen has worked with the Human Venture Institute for over six years, and last year she spoke and ran a breakout session at the Western Canada Fundraising Conference. There we go, I stumbled. Uh, on top of that, Allison is the president of the board for the Edmonton Story Slam. Allison Hagen, welcome to our show. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> Thanks for uh, taking the time to chat with us. I know it's kind of busy this time of year. <laughs> It's always busy. Yeah, right. Um, so I'm going to jump in with the tough questions. You grew up in Manitoba, is that right? That's correct. <laughs> Just a small town girl in the big city. <laughs> That's right. That's your Twitter bio, isn't mm -hmm, it? Mm -hmm. I'm a very good stalker. Uh, <laughs> all I know of Manitoba is driving through it. It was like very rural, like very farm. It's, there's a lot of space in between the, the farms. Let's just put it that way. I grew <laughs> up uh, 20 minutes uh, outside of town on a farm. Uh, we had a mitts farm with cows and horses and chickens and wheat. And uh, I had a really good childhood. So I was really happy. And I feel very fortunate that I've had that upbringing and was had that opportunity to grow up uh, in nature and with great parents. And annoying siblings, but there you have it. <laughs> they wouldn't We're, be siblings otherwise. Exactly. And I was the oldest. I wanted to be an only child, but uh, mm. my parents uh, refused to just keep it to me. <laughs> <laughs> We're, we're both uh, rural boys, really, too. So um, I didn't uh, I didn't grow up on a farm, but we had like what uh, people here in Edmonton call acreage. So mm. <laughs> um, and Paul, you're you get you're pretty rural as well, weren't you? And you. Yeah. Up? Yeah. My town was uh, very much a farming community. Uh, I didn't grow up on a farm, but uh, most of my friends in school uh, were uh, growing up on farms. And uh, things like 4-H and stuff like that are, are were pretty big in our community. Oh, yeah. So I was I belonged to 4-H. I did my speeches. I was the horse club, though, so I didn't have to give my sacrifice my animal every year like you did in the beef club. <laughs> yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. Um, I, yeah. My only experience was actually when I came to Edmonton um, driving through Manitoba and I think it was Manitoba that really struck me was I was sort of confused because all of the billboards on the highway weren't for me. They were for like farming equipment. They weren't hotels or McDonald's. They were like, hey, you should use this pesticide. <laughs> <laughs> and you didn't want to go out and buy it? The marketing did, didn't work on you? That's shocking. It, it was it, there was a tractor ad where I was like, I could just stop here, stop driving and drive that tractor. It'd be nice. <laughs> yeah. He's he's driving through and as he's going, he's slowly think considering uh, starting a farm, buying a farm and becoming a farmer just because you know of what? all of the marketing. 
That would be, uh, I think, small farms are the way we should be going. And there's a lot of small farmers out there. So I think more of us should be doing that. Oh, no, I totally agree with you. Like the whole, it's really interesting when you talk to people of another generation um, where I know that there's uh, some stuff in my hometown and there's some stuff here that's like uh, local to table kind of stuff. But it's really interesting when you talk to those older generations and you learn like, that they ate within the seasons. It's so interesting, Mm -hmm. you know, like now you can get, uh, you know, bananas or blueberries any time of the year. And it's just really interesting. Like if we ate that way and grew more local, it just would be so much more sustainable. Right. It would have a, yeah, a huge impact on our environment. Uh, and we're not pricing food properly because we're not putting in the environmental impact of having to ship everything so far. Right. Yeah. If we, if we included the, even just the carbon cost, let alone the other kinds of costs that, that that are involved in that. But if we just factored in the carbon cost, our our food would look a lot different and would be priced, you know, locally. Then <laughs> you would be incentivized to buy the things that are made locally because it would be so much cheaper than uh, something that's, you know, grown in California and shipped to uh, Michigan or Canada or or wherever. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, you uh, you used to. To a whole service thing for like a co-op, didn't you, Paul? I forgot about that. Yeah, um, I didn't. I didn't expect the conversation to to veer <laughs> into uh, sustainable uh, farming and food practices and and <laughs> local food supply kind of thing. But yeah, I was a founding member of the um, West Michigan Co-op, which was a online co-op that was a way to discover basically farms that had stuff available. Uh, whatever time of year it was, and you would, for one week of the month, you would be able to shop online and kind of fill up a basket, and then one day of the month, uh, everybody would get together, and it would be like a big farmer's market. But the farmers would already have whatever you ordered, and then if you wanted to buy some more stuff while you were looking at it, you could do that. Uh, But it was kind of a a way to bring farmer's markets, um, add a little bit of technology to the farmer's market, but also try to get people together at the same time, connecting, you know, a new generation of people that might not really be folks that are aware of regular farmers markets um, into get them into that crowd. That sounds amazing. We need more of that. Uh, Yeah. In Alberta, in, in the world, we need more of that, but we're society is slow to change and adapt to uh, new realities. So we'll see what happens there. So, I noticed that you studied journalism and English at the University of Regina. What what motivated that? I, you know, I was I was in high school and I didn't know I liked writing. I'm like, well, what can you do with that? I guess you can take an English degree and journalism degree. So I went to the University of Regina, which has a journalism program. I really enjoyed it. It was uh, a small program. Uh, they only allowed 20 kids, uh, 20 students in a year. And I was lucky enough to get in. And it was uh, an amazing, intense two years of schooling with a great group of people that I'm still proud to say we're all very connected and we have that common experience together. So, uh, uh, we have, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it was an incredible, uh, you know, you would 
go to school in the morning, you put on a radio show, you do a TV show, you, you know, put a newspaper together. It was back in the days. It was just as we were starting to do things online with computers. So uh, the first year we were actually still cutting and pasting and, and making the newspapers the old fashioned way. So it was uh, quite the experience and pretty intense uh, two years of schooling. Yeah, that's um, that. So that was like layout stuff that you were doing. Yeah, right? yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. Like I, I did a graphic design program and it was it was kind of things that already switched over. But my community college that I went to, what they did was um, in order for the printing department, which they had to stay relevant, they took on the graphic design. And so part of my coursework was to actually use a printing press and do that kind of thing, too. And you learn a lot, right? Like, oh, yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, just being so hands-on and developing film, well, black and white film. That was, you know, something, it's not a skill set, you know, you need anymore, but I'm glad I, you know, it's a creative outlet for sure that I'm glad I had that experience. It's it's interesting because you get the vocabulary, right? Like you understand like where these terms in software now originated Mm -hmm. from because you did the actual thing. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. (laughs) There was. It's actually cutting and pasting. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Um, so, did you did you actually develop a hobby of photography as well, or no? I do. I yeah. I still enjoy photography. I'm not. Um, I, I don't have the. Uh, well, I have a decent camera and uh, and one zoom lens, but not like some people who are. And I feel like everyone. Ha- nowadays has a camera and uh is an amateur photographer but i do enjoy taking photos yeah yeah that's something i've uh lamented about many times on the podcast is how everyone does have a camera and so i because my our school that paul and i went to is uh our video and film department was tied to the photography department so we have a lot of photography friends and it's you've watched them all sort of like try to find their own niche because everyone has a camera in their phone. So. Yeah. And it, it, yeah, it's, it's sad. Even journalism uh, mm-hmm. now, it's really sad to see what's happening to that profession uh, that's been decimated. Uh, the newsrooms, um, my, both my sister and I, Susan uh, went to journalism stool uh, graduated with a journalism degree. Uh, she is still a writer, a freelance writer and writing uh, on her own. Um, I pretty much have strayed away from that and gone, uh, you know, more into my career of, as a fundraiser and doing pet projects like Story Slam on the side. But I, yeah, I feel terrible for journalists out there and uh, the state of the world because we don't have uh, that, you know, fifth estate watching out for us and questioning the government and, uh, keeping us all safe from, uh, and you know, the Trumps of the world. So yeah, <laughs> sorry. I said the Trump word. I promise not to say that, but uh, <laughs> it's all right. It's all right. He's here. We have to deal with him. Yeah. It's true. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's definitely some interesting changes happening in the way things work as far as employment for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. My uh, sister did work at the Edmonton journal uh, oh. back in the day. And uh, uh, since she's been there, it's, it's like an eighth of the staff. It's really, it's really sad to see how small the journal has become. Uh, 
you know, there was a point I'm like, I'm going to cancel my newspaper subscription because that's how I'm going to make a protest. But then I realized I'm not helping the problem by canceling. So I still get the old fashioned delivery to my doorstep. I'm like, well, I'm employed a couple of people anyway, but at least the guy that's delivering the paper, maybe get, I don't even know. So hopefully he gets paid. So yeah. <laughs> yeah um, that was my wife likes to set uh, monthly goals and uh, she, she used to have a very long drive to work and listen to the CBC on her way back and forth. And now she rides her bike and it's very short commute. So she was like, I'm not getting news anymore. And so mm-hmm. she's like, that's my monthly goal. This past February was to subscribe to the journal, not only to support journalism, but also to get better informed again. So <laughs> she keeps coming home and telling me stories. I think it's important to go to multiple sources. And there are some good sources out there, including uh, Tom and Dreams. It's a really good website to go to for some other um if you just listen to mainstream mm-hmm. news, you're not going to get the full story. So it's important to go to um, CBC Radio is a great resource for us. Uh, and we should fight to keep that government funded uh, journalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, and NPR and there's a lot of great uh, uh, sources out there. So um, I just yeah encourage people not to just look at the mainstream uh, media because that will not give you the full story. You need to look at other sources as well. Yeah, the bubble. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah, I'd encourage people uh, to uh, the BBC, I think for uh, for Americans, the BBC often provides a pretty interesting perspective, but also uh, Al Jazeera America Mm -hmm. provides a pretty, um, you know, a much, much more international perspective, um, which gives you a better idea of like, outside of America, what what are people thinking of us right now? So yeah, those are yeah great sources for news. So, so yeah, journalism in English, and as you said, like you've sort of moved into this. Uh, I guess would say a nonprofit sector. How did that happen? Uh, there was uh, a lot of. Uh, I'm a Gen Xer, so there was a lot of <laughs> bumbling around for me after school. Um, after I graduated from school, uh, couldn't really find my place in life. It was the early '90s. There were no jobs. It was. Um, I was an episode of the TV show Friends. It was, <laughs> <laughs> it was, uh, uh, yeah. So there's a lot of bumbling around. Ended up though uh, taking the job uh, at the MS Society in Red Deer. After I've pretty much had every job you can possibly think of uh, over the years, but um, ended up uh, including owning a pizza restaurant for five years. So that was a disaster. Uh, but then ended up. Uh, working for the MS Society in, in Red Deer and got promoted up to Edmonton, uh, organizing the bike tour and then was promoted again to director of development. So that's kind of my, uh, and I have to say, I really, uh, I love Edmonton. I've been here for, uh, since 2000 and it's been a great city, a great community, very welcoming. And, uh, it's one of the yeah best cities I've lived in over the years. And so I'm, I, I love Edmonton and what it has to offer here, including the river Valley. Yeah. <laughs> yes. It's, uh, it's always nice to just go get lost in the river. Valley. Yeah. yeah. Forget you're in the city. It's the yeah. fun girl in me. Yep. Um, but, uh, a disaster pizza restaurant. Maybe we should talk about that instead. Yeah, it's, 
<laughs> you know, I married young. We did a pizza restaurant. Uh, it was uh, very stressful, long hours, you know, 16 hour days. And uh, in the end, the restaurant uh, was doing okay, but some outside pressures and we had to sell and pretty much walked away with the shirts on our back. So that was pretty mm. tough. And uh, then, uh, yeah, got the opportunity in Red Deer and it was a two month, two month position. And I'm like, we're moving to Red Deer. So we moved to Red Deer <laughs> on a two month position, but I'm wow. still with the MS Society. So I guess that's what really matters in the end. <laughs> Yeah. So tell us, um, what kind of, uh, support does the MS society offer? Yeah, we, uh, we offer, uh, supports for people living with MS, uh, and that support can be, uh, uh, it can be uh, social, it can be uh, support groups, it can be information about what's happening because MS is a very, um, um, challenging disease. You never know what's going to happen next with you. Uh, so those are some of the supports we provide for people living with MS today and their family members. Uh, and we also, uh, our money also goes into research so we can find a cure to, and to provide hope for people living with this disease. And there's been some amazing research happening, uh, even just recently, that uh, we're all very excited about. And I, I do feel a cure is uh, going to come in my lifetime. I feel like we will have a cure for MS. And uh, the research we're doing in Canada is, you know, so amazing. Uh, uh, the other day I got to do a research tour at the University of Alberta right here in Edmonton. And um, I didn't get to see the mice, but I was very excited about the prospect that there was mice just in the other room. I'm scared to death of them, but that's another <laughs> story. But uh, they were talking about how they're testing the mice and pain and how uh, the female mice that have MS are uh, react to pain differently than the male mice that have MS because women are tougher and, uh, <laughs> and then just, uh, exercise in MS and how MS can help modify, uh, the progression of the disease and, or help with the pain. And I, th I find this very fascinating. So then we can, uh, come up with treatments to help people with pain and MS. Uh, yeah. So some great research happening locally across Canada and, uh, I'm excited to be a part of that and raise money to help, uh, so that we can find a cure for the disease. Did I read on the website that for some reason, like Canada is like has more people with MS than. Yeah, there's uh, uh, over 100,000 Canadians that have MS. We have one of the highest rates of MS in the world. They're not sure why. They hmm. do think that geographically it might have something to do with the fact that we're further away from the border. There are other countries, too, that are further away, and they do see higher incidence of MS as well. So that has to do probably with vitamin D. So there yeah. are some good studies happening as well with vitamin D and uh, and vitamin D supplements and how much uh, we should recommend for people to take as supplements. Uh, and they have also found that people that live in countries closer to the border, if they move to Canada, their chances of uh, getting MS goes up. So that wow. is also, so there's a geographic, uh, hmm. the, there's also probably some sort of, uh, genetic link as well, but it's, um, it's not, if you have MS, the, your chances of giving your children MS is very remote, but there's still a higher percentage than general population. So there's probably a link between genetics and the environment. Hmm. 
Yeah, that's interesting. The same with identical twins. So one identical twin could um, get MS and the other one won't. So that's some of the studies that are being done right now. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, I know when I first moved here, they were like, uh, that was the first thing my doctor said was like, oh, I have to get you in for a shot. And I was like, what? And they're like, your vitamin D is low. And I was like, (laughs) it is? Mm. Yeah, a very yeah, very few people get tested for that, and I, I think probably everyone that lives in Canada has uh, low vitamin D. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what I'm finding out. Like, mm-hmm. I, I can't believe it. I was like, wow, I never took this back in Michigan, but we're much closer to <laughs> the equator. So, yeah, so it's really uh, quite interesting. And so now I'm like making sure I always take it every day. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, there is a study happening, and I think an announcement coming out soon about what the recommended dosage is that people should take because people, yeah, can take a variety uh, number of dosages. Yeah, it's true. Actually, a previous guest we had on the show once uh, on Twitter had tweeted out like, you know, I'm supposed to take more, I'm supposed to get more vitamin D, like, you know, how much should I take? And I just was watching the comment thread, maybe it was Facebook, where some people were like, I take four pills. And I I was like, oh, my goodness, like, Mm -hmm. it was just all over the place, Mm because the doctor just says, take vitamin D, there's no sort of recommended. It's really, hmm. so I'm eager to see that study. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it'll be good. Need those numbers. Mm -hmm. Um. So, yeah. So the, so what you're talking about is, uh, they support, you obviously support people and then the research aspect as well. But then the MSI Society of Canada, that's completely funded through donations. There's no other. Yeah. We're 97% self-funded. Uh, so we get very little funding from, uh, either, uh, pharmaceutical companies or from the government so we uh, are very reliant on our, uh, for instance, our fundraising events. So we have uh, the Johnson MS bike tour that happens here in Alberta, and it's a cross country. There's 22 bike tours across Canada, and uh, there's also some great bike tours in the states. The bike MS in the states. Uh, we work closely with our sister organization and NMSS in the states. Uh, and uh, they have a great tier uh, in Texas, the BPMS 150 that I've been lucky enough to go to before and see, you know, 15,000 cyclists on the road raising $15 million. So that's an amazing tour. But uh, yeah, the bike tour here that is uh, the one in Edmonton is the largest one in Canada. Uh, the Le Duc de Camrose, it's uh, 2,000 cyclists raising over $2 million. So we're pretty proud of that tour. And there's four bike tours in Alberta. So uh, the bike tour uh, for Le Duc this year is June 10th and 11th for Erdrie to Olds out of Calgary. It's uh, later on in June. And then we there is a, a, a mountain tour in the fall that's off-road. That's a little niche, cute event that we do. Wow. Yeah. And, and then we also do MS Watts. So the Jamin built MS Watt. Uh, there's 13 across Alberta, over 150 across the country. And those are really our... Uh, Inclusive events, family events for people affected by MS, for people with their friends, uh, family, co-workers to come together to do something about this disease and fight this disease. So a very popular event uh, and uh, that uh, will happen in May across the province. 
Yeah, and the the walk here in Edmonton is at the Telus Field. Is that? Yeah, it's at Telus Field. It's uh, we've been there for the last. This will be the third year for us at that location, and uh, we walked along the River Valley, which is really pretty. Oh, and, okay. Yeah, so and it's it's a really pretty community down uh, in the, across from Telus Field. There, it's a yeah, really Ross pretty Dill. community. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, yeah, it's a uh, you know we have. 1,500 to 2,000 people come out to that event as well. It's a really uh, great family event, uh, lots of people, uh, and, uh, you know, some great uh, uh, activities. And it's just a, a really heartwarming feeling when you're at the event to look around and you know everyone there is fundraising and trying to do something about this disease to end this disease. It really gives you hope that someday we, we will find a cure for MS. And... Uh- so have you ever participated in the bike ride? I, I Not the Leduc one because I'm always working it. And, sure. Uh, I'm always, uh, <laughs> I'm in charge of driving the bike tour manager. I'm sure they wish I wouldn't because I'm not the best driver. But <laughs> uh, so I, yeah, so I'm in charge of that while they're on the phone. And uh, other than that, uh, I have ridden in the Airdrie to Olds one, uh, ah. at least day one. And I really, yeah, I think you can't work at the MS Society without learning to love uh, cycling because it's uh, it's contagious. We have cyclists stopping by our office all the time. They're handing in pledges. They're chatting with us. They're showing us their, the jersey. They just got designed for the tour. It really is contagious and you just get addicted to your to it yourself. Uh, so yeah, it's a lot of fun. And I participate in the, in the Jim and Bill MS walk every year and I fundraise for that walk. So that's my individual contribution to the MS Society. Yeah, no, I, 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 um, I hadn't heard since recent <laughs> move here, but uh, I hadn't heard about the bike ride. And then when I was researching this show today, I was like looking at it. I was like, oh, that sounds like really fun. And then I saw how many kilometers it was, and I was like, oh, I don't know if I'm ready for that. <laughs> it's you know, I find um, uh, the tour isn't that bad. There's checkpoints along the way. There's lunch stop. We have people uh, picking you up if it's too hard. And usually people, for the most part, people can do it, especially guys. I find they dust off their bike the day before the tour. They ride the two days. They have a sore bum, but otherwise they're fine. Uh, it's when the weather's bad, which we had really bad weather last year. I'm not going to lie to everyone that it was really bad weather. And it was, uh, it was a, the wind was against the riders both days. I felt really uh, bad for everybody on the road, but uh, we looked after everyone. We brought them in. If they couldn't make it, we gave them some hot soup and some hot coffee and they all survived. So that's good. And there's a big party on the Saturday night, which is really the highlight for most of the cyclists that they just get in on Saturday we have a big party. It's a big, you know, there's dancing, there's music, there's big celebration, big supper. We have a, a rider village. Teams will put up their um, tents and have, you know, they'll bring in their own hot tubs. It's a, it's a nice festival feeling that we have at the, at the event. Nice. Yeah, Sounds a lot like of corporations. NASCAR, but for a better cause. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And a lot of corporations will put teams in uh, the tour and uh, they find it a great team uh, bonding corporate um, culture thing for them. Yeah. Um, and so you could you could start a team and then only ride like one day and have somebody else ride the next day, right? You can do whatever you want. We, we're, we're not policing people. There's 2,000 cyclists for one thing. We're not policing <laughs> anybody. And uh, it's really, it's about raising money to, sure. uh, that's the main thing. So if you're able to ride all two days, that's fantastic, but that's your own personal challenge. It's, it's not something we insist people mm-hmm. do. Okay. 
Good to know. Mm-hmm. Need to ride more. Yeah, it's and it's fun. Uh, that's uh, there's some training rides prior to the tour as well, so uh, people can go out to uh, Devon and uh, mm. do some training rides uh, organized by one of our great cycling volunteers, Stu Hutchings. Oh, that sounds really interesting. Yeah, maybe my spouse and I should do that because. I had mentioned it to her before the show tonight and she said, I've always wanted to do that. And I said, well, there you go. Both of us are <laughs> awesome. Awesome. I'll get yeah. you registered right now. I'm an aggressive <laughs> fundraiser. Sorry. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I just walked into. Um, yeah. So, um, and then, so we talked about the bike and we talked about the walk a little bit. Uh, and then for, for if I was going to start a team or if we were going to do it, then it's uh, I get like a pledge sheet and I get my friends like Paul to pledge me. And then yeah, I yeah. do the ride. Is that? Yeah, it's pretty much um, online fundraising makes it really easy. So oh, you would okay. just uh, send out emails to all your friends and ask them to pledge you online. And uh, it's yeah, it's pretty simple. Uh, I think people are always surprised. It's only a $300 minimum to ride it in the, uh, in the Johnson MS bike in Alberta, which is not that much money. If you got, you know, I don't, I can't do math because I'm a terrible uh, mathematician. I'm an English major, but uh, so yeah, you don't need that many people. So we encourage people to reach for a thousand dollars at the thousand dollar level. You can get a Jersey, which is very fancy. So uh, much nicer than the Totten t-shirt you get at 300. So we encourage people to go for the thousand dollars and it's easier to do that than it lets just, just tell people what you're doing and people are, will surprise you at how supportive that they'll be. Nice. And they can donate at any amount. It's not per kilometer or anything like that, right? No, it's not. Just, yeah. That's too hard. Just get the yeah. money up front. <laughs> yeah. That's what I thought. <laughs> um, I imagine you need a lot of uh, volunteers for an event like that and um, or or the walk. So uh, where, where do people go to join up and help out? Yeah, we uh, uh, just uh, definitely, you know, our website or our office, we have a volunteer manager that uh, recruits volunteers and uh, we have a good core group of people. We have a, a committee, a bike committee and a walk committee that We'll meet ahead of time and uh, do a lot of the logistical planning of the event and help guide wh- what direction we need to go. So those are a dedicated, you know, 15 to 20 people that meet monthly to do a, a lot of the planning with our staff. Uh, and then we uh, branch out from there. So for the bike, we need uh, about 500 volunteers for the Duke. And for the walk, we need about 200 volunteers and people uh, we have a good core group of people that come back every year to do it. Uh, But yeah, definitely if people are interested, I know there's always maybe some spouses, you know, their husband or wife is riding and they're not going to, so they'll uh, volunteer that weekend too. So it's a good way to draw in new people as well. So yeah, we've uh, talked about the bike and the walk, and I'm sure you do other events like auctions and things like that. How how many events like a year do you suppose you do yourself, Alice? <laughs> I don't know. That, yeah, last night I was at, you know, we have a lot of our uh, participants will hold events as well. So last night, uh, Patricia Jehuvka was at Dillette's Bar, uh, Burger Bar, and uh, she had uh, a Burger of the Month. Uh, uh, so a dollar from each burger that's sold there will go to her fundraising uh, she's a great ambassador uh, for the MS Society. She has MS herself and she uh, is out in the community all the time. Uh, 
she, you would love to have her on your show. You should definitely bring her in sometime. She's uh, our own little celebrity at the MS Society. <laughs> um, but yeah, the, a lot of our participants have events. We have some I challenge or just some pers- uh, third party fundraisers people will put on. Uh, there's some exciting ones that um, are coming up. We have golf tournaments. Uh, we have our MS golf tournament that sells out every year. We have uh, that's in August. We have uh, Burgers to Beat MS, which is an A and W partnership in which a dollar from every teen burger in August goes to the MS Society. So there's always lots going on. We are, we're never bored for lack of events to do. That's for sure. <laughs> Sounds like it. <laughs> yeah, I actually uh, heard you um, talking on. Oh my goodness, there's. Uh, a million Oilers podcasts here, but you were on an Oilers podcast oh, yeah. over at uh, Brewster's. I think you guys were doing an auction perhaps. Yeah. But, yeah. That uh, was a, a team. No, I, I think that was a, just a fundraiser that they gave the money to the MS society. Oh, so that okay. was a, that was a, just a third party event, which was really nice. Yeah. That's, that's really great. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then uh, you brought some of this experience to the, Western Canadian fundraising uh, conference, right? Yeah. So uh, uh, the partnership group, which is owned by Brent Brudis, he uh, we hired him about six years ago to come in and do an analysis of sponsorship for us at the MS Society. And he changed the culture at the MS Society and how we do things. So Brent has been very generous uh, uh, with me and uh, bringing me in uh, to do uh, tots and stuff about some of the successes I had because of his guidance and his uh, help over the years of uh, finding sponsors. So it's been uh, really uh, a great journey working with Brent and having him, um, yeah, be a mentor to me and helping with uh, partnerships and sponsorships. So uh, we now have, um, yeah, a, a director of uh, sponsorship at the MS Society uh, that, uh, we, you know, everything that we do now is really in relation to what we learned through the partnership group. Oh, that's exciting. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, uh, um, it's all about uh, building relationships with people. That's, I mean, number one with fundraising, uh, uh, you, know, be, you know, being trustworthy, finding out what a sponsor truly needs from you. It's a marketing um uh, investment for them and really delivering on what it is that they need so that they have return on, on investment for uh, what they are paying you. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people treat sponsorship like a philanthropic gift, but the difference we like to say the difference between philanthropy, the philanthropic giving and sponsorship is uh, if somebody gives you a gift, they get a tax receipt and a hug. But if somebody gives you a sponsorship, they actually get return on investment, whether it's logo recognition or naming or uh, whatever uh, um, inventory items you give them to uh, make up the uh, evaluation for what they gave you. Yeah, right. I mean, that's why individuals give is because it usually makes them feel good. They're not looking just for that tax receipt, right? So, Whereas a corporation, um, they'll do it to feel good too. Don't get me wrong. But they do hopefully to either to drive sales or to uh, exposure or even uh, um, community uh, good feelings towards them. It's all worth – that's worth money to them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, So I guess now we're getting into uh, some of the philosophical things about uh, that 
So that makes me want to ask you about the Human Ventures Institute. I was reading their website and it's very fascinating. It is. I was lucky enough to um, be part of the Human Venture um, organization. I it was it used to be a year long class uh, that was offered in both Edmonton and Calgary, and I was I took it six years ago, and I've been volunteering with the organization ever since. So the purpose of the Human Venture is to uh, to promote adaptive development in both individuals and social cultural environment. So it's a little bit difficult to explain, but it's essentially it's about caring about the world, the environment and our place in it and looking at the larger picture and understanding our place in it and how we're all connected, whether it's through nature, the environment, um, whether it's connecting philosophy, uh, how we educate ourselves. I know what is learning? How do we learn what, what, um, why are we within the small frame of our thinking? How do we get out of that? How do we think in the larger picture? So we really do want to increase uh, the number of resourceful, resilient, responsible, life-ranging human beings that have di- diagnostic and design capabilities to reduce ignorance and error, waste, suffering, and injustice at all levels from individuals to civilization, which is a uh, such a lofty statement, it's almost impossible to imagine it, but that's what uh, we're trying to achieve. And we do this through um, looking at our institutions and what is working, what is not working. We look at our uh, cultural, culturally and societally what those resources are. We look at leaders who are actually adaptive and also the leaders that are maladaptive. Uh, and the counterventure forces that are, that are out there. We look at the ecologies of influence, whether locally or globally, that support the development and main, maintenance of systemic adaptive cap- capacities. So that's some of what we're trying to achieve, which, again, um, we're just trying to develop wisdom and uh, learn from past mistakes, whether it's uh, looking at history, uh, reading books like Ronald Wright, A Short History of Progress, um, and using those examples of uh, living on Easter Island and how they destroyed the environment on Easter Island uh, and um, and died off because they cut down all the trees. So what are we doing to planet Earth right now? We are destroying the habitat where we live. We're destroying the environment and we don't have another planet to move to. So how can we use the resources that we have left, use them wisely and do the right thing, which is very hard. And then we study why people do the things that they do. And a lot of it is because we're small troop primates. Uh, We are used to living in small uh, troops and caring about immediately what's uh, around us and not looking, you know, three generations ahead uh, to what could happen in the future. So that is, uh, so we have to understand how we learn and why we learn the way we do so that we can get out of those frames and, and try and get people to think more adaptively. Sorry, that was a long rant. <laughs> no, but it, it makes sense. I mean, people, um, there's there's a big um, tragedy of the commons thing going on right now, where everybody thinks. Uh, I guess one of the one of the ways that you can think about it is, oh, you know, no single nobody nobody's individual vote counts, right? Nobody's individual drive to work is really com- uh, committing that much carbon to the atmosphere. Nobody's uh, individual decision to eat a cheeseburger instead of salad 
really changed the the overall economy of food all that much. And yet, um, if we don't think about these things on a systemic level, you can't get enough individuals to decide to make a change that a change actually occurs, right? Those changes compound based on having systems and cultural uh, enforcement, reinforcement of uh, the values that we need to have in order to make things more sustainable, as an example. Yeah. And how do you create that movement? How do you get enough people to care? And you don't need the majority of the population. I think they came up with the number once. I think it's 14% or maybe even less, maybe it's 9% of a general population to make a movement actually grow and make uh, systemic changes to how we do things. So we are so driven. What is progress? What is the definition of progress? Is it consuming more and more or is it is it the GDP or is it something else? And how do we figure out what that is? Um, I think there's a lot of studies been done that prove we're not any happier consuming at the levels that we are right now. Um, and people will make the argument that they don't want to give up how they're living right now. Uh, the other argument is, well, why in North America do we deserve to live in this abundance when you have mm-hmm. people in India and China that want to, you know, can see what we have and want to live the same way, but it would take six planets for us to be able to sustain that for everyone to have a car right, um, and to right. live the way that we do right now. Yep. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's when I was reading over the webpage for human venture, I was, I really like that question. Like what is progress? Like you just said, like, uh, as an individual, like I know that um, I've been doing a lot of that when it comes to like self-care and self-analyzation, like as an individual, I'm my own worst critic. And that so I often have to rewind and be like, what progress did I really make and look at it from the outside? And that's like kind of what you're saying we need to do as a whole, as a community, as a culture, as a society. Right. So we need to figure out what really progress is. And there's some great resources on us for us to draw on, but we often, you know, are limited because we want to watch the latest Netflix show. Um, <laughs> although there's some great documentaries on Netflix too, but there are some great resources out there. Um, so I encourage people uh, if they are interested in this sort of learning that there's a, a great book list uh, on the website uh, is the humanventure.com or humanventure.com. Uh, Listen, the rule by Thomas Frank, great book on American politics and how it, we got to the situation we're in right now with Trump. Uh, there, uh, a book I just read, The Hidden Life of Trees, talking about trees, uh, how they feel, how they communicate. It's really connecting us back to nature because a lot of people are disconnected from nature and they don't understand how, uh, uh, they think of nature as a resource for us to exploit because the Bible tells us that we can. So it's uh, drawing on other things so that we're not so selfish. Uh, and I just finished uh, The Invention of Nature by Alexander von Humboldt. Oh, no, sorry. It's The Invention of Nature, Alexander von Humboldt's New World by Andrea Wolf. Also a great book. Talks uh, about uh, really the first environmentalist in the 1800s. And he's a uh, influenced uh, Charles Darwin. So, but he's the name at the time. He was very famous. They had praise for him. He was from Germany, but uh, they celebrated him in the new world as well. But he's the name you don't hear. He's the most forgotten, famous person out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's interesting that uh, Charles Darwin was uh, influenced from him by him. So yeah, there's a lot of resources out there for people to explore. Uh, if they would only wake up and realize that we can't 
be satisfied with the status quo and there we're in imminent danger right now and we need to do something about it. So that's my cheery um, <laughs> <laughs> pronunciation for uh, the world. <laughs> well, it's, I, I think I'm sure you both would agree, but I think it's when we operate that way without the, as the website says, the wide site view, when we operate just like within these small groups, like you said, and the, the small world view, I think we put ourselves in like crisis mode all the time. Like now we have to do something about this. Now we have to do something about that. And just as an individual who's been learning more and more about his own anxiety, like that's not a way for me to live personally. So it doesn't seem like that would scale out really well. I think the danger is we often act without, well, because uh, we're in crisis, but we haven't, um, uh, we'll act without, uh, really understanding the situation deeply. So we really, there needs to be learning that happens before there is action. Uh, uh, the human venture um, can be uh, quite intense in that it's really a lot about learning, about reading the books, about studying these resources. Uh, and uh, the founder, uh, the person who um, had, uh, that started all of this, Ken Lowe, uh, he lives in Calgary, um, a lot of what he has done is studied human uh, patterns in human striving, failure, and achievement, uh, and so that we can try and understand how we got to this and understand uh, what we can do about it. So it really is about learning, figuring out how you learn, and figuring out what where are your biases, where uh, where do you uh, not see what is coming at you. So uh, I think it's really important to try to. Uh, learn and problem solve before you do something that could be more harmful. There's a lot of solutions that are being thrown out right now of, oh, we'll just block the sun from hitting the earth so we don't warm up so much. But what are the consequences to that? I think we need to mm-hmm. think more deeply about mm-hmm. what the, those answers are. And uh, I'll just throw out there that um, there used to be a March, um, sorry, there used to be a a week, um, a year long training program for uh, human venture. It, we've now uh, just uh, with time constraints and uh, how things are going now, uh, we are uh, put it into one week intensive. So there is uh, a human venture learning uh, in May that you can learn about uh, on our, on our website. So I really encourage people if you're interested to go to the human uh, venture website to learn more about th- uh, the program that's happening in uh that's happening in edmonton in may uh, the last week of may and there is an information session also on march 8th at the telus uh downtown and if you would like to come out to learn more about the human venture we will be uh presenting on it so that's my little slide for human venture (laughs) um the i think it was the middle book and recommendations you said you just read it about the trees mm-hmm, the hidden life of trees yeah so did you like that it was uh, it was it was a beautifully written book i learned things about trees i didn't think i could know uh they are interconnected uh i think one that really stood out for me is uh the the street that uh the city uh thud trees because uh, they are disconnected from nature in many ways. Their roots are blocked by cement. They're not able to grow the foundation, the root system that trees in the forest are able to, and they're a little bit isolated and they won't live as long. So it makes me 
now I see a tree in the city and I feel sad for it. They, uh, they connect with their uh, trees in the forest will connect with their children and help nurture their children and will differentiate from their children. Uh, It's just, it's mind boggling to know um, that trees can feel pain and that, uh, yeah, this book is, is partially um, poetry. uh, It's partially um, a storytelling. It's just good storytelling. It's, talking more than just this is a tree and this is how a tree works mm-hmm. it's telling a, a story behind the tree and their lives and they live for so long they have you know hundreds of thousands of years their ability to live uh uh and they'll be here hopefully long after we're done i um yeah i recently listened to a public radio um podcast from radio lab and they did a story on the root systems of trees and how they're just communicating miles away and saying, hey, it's the weather over here is cold. And then the other trees will react to that and prepare. And it's really fascinating, like how that works. I think as uh, as humans, we are so used to being um, or thinking arrogantly that we're the only creatures that matter on this planet and we forget about nature and uh, that it, it's been around way longer than, you know, we, you know, we haven't mm-hmm. been around that long on this planet is just a small fraction of time. It's a blink of an eye that we've been on this planet, but we've caused so much destruction in the short time that we've been here. Uh, that's, uh, I think, uh, the saddest part, of, you know, and even today, NASA saying that they found other planets that could have um, Earth-like capabilities. It makes me sad in a way to think that, uh, if we don't learn how to live on this planet, that we can possibly go somewhere else and provide the same destruction on that planet too, and use it as uh, a place that we can get resor- resources from and not see the larger picture of what uh, the beauty that's here, right here on the, on this planet. Yeah. And your comment about um, trees in the city, you can blame architecture or people. So architects. <laughs> no, I actually, um, uh, I worked in a theater as my work study job in university and we had some kind of event that was like an annual event, but one of the speakers that was invited, I wish I could remember his name cause I, I loved him. He was so good, but he was a professor from Chicago and, uh, Actually, I was running like the lights and sound and stuff with another person and he came in and he was very professorly, like very docile and very like, and he said, can I have a lavalier mic? Cause I'm going to be walking around a lot. And as soon as we hooked him up and he got all ready and he went to sit by the stage to wait his turn, we just looked at each other and we said, I don't know that he's going to move around much. He doesn't seem, he's very professorly, right? He's just very dour. And and he got up there and he commanded the stage and he talked about um, how his teenage son, like he was going away to do one of these talks or something. And he said, please water the plant. And he's like, I want you to water the plant to keep it alive. And he's like, you mean to keep it from dying? Don't you dad? And he was like, it really struck me like, yeah, like that plant in a pot in my house is only alive because I give it water. Otherwise it would just die. I am just barely keeping it alive. And he went on to talk about how we displace 
the natural environment of plants in our local yards because we want to put down this fine grass. And so he called the grass in front of your house a drug-dependent rug because unless (laughs) you watered it and gave it fertilizer, it would die. And he was like, we need to go back to more natural landscaping. And he's like, he's like, I like to blame architects because whenever you look at blueprints, you see these lollipop shaped trees. Have you ever seen one of those in your real life? He's like, they don't exist. <laughs> anyway, he, then he just kept going on. He was like those skinny people walking in front of lollipop trees. <laughs> uh, I'm thinking maybe his son went to be an architect. <laughs> um. Yeah, and the the idea of like the systemic adaptive capacities, like that that's a really cool idea. I, I just was like really fascinated by that webpage. I'm gonna have to see if I can fit in that introductory thing. So yeah. I found it really yeah, cool. March eighth. Uh tell us. Yeah. Six PM. Um and uh, what kind of things do you do when you volunteer there for them? Do you teach some of the courses or? Uh, I Yeah, when we used to have the year long intensive, I would do some of the presentations and help, you know, assist with the logistics for um, Ken would come out. Ken Lowe would come out for them and do the majority of the sessions. But uh, the best way to really learn something is to have to present on them. So he would encourage us to do presentations to uh, uh, he has developed a framework of map. Uh, really mapping out the human condition of uh, why we do what we do. So uh, taking some of those maps relating to the, to the books or to the movies that we, or the documentaries that we study and uh, taking them and bringing, bringing them alive. So that's uh, some of what I did Uh, this past year there's been less uh volunteering with it because uh we haven't had the program here in edmonton however i have been going to calgary once a month uh there's a an alumni program this is like a second level of called pathfinders or it's called uh, alumni program now i guess and uh so i've been doing that once a month uh, uh over the next eight months uh really uh digging in we talked a lot about trump because we're all in uh, uh in shock over what has happened in the states Although it was completely predictable and Michael Moore did predict it. Uh, but uh, and really looking at some of those resources to understand why this happened. And, you know, so the Thomas Frank book about uh, Listen Liberal was a good resource to explain how the Democratic Party got to the where it is. So, um, yeah, so I haven't. Um, uh, and then, of course, you know, just trying to. Uh, um, yeah, worked with um, to integrate this. The more you can integrate um, the framework of the human venture into your everyday life, the better. I'm just trying to be a good human being. So, hmm. hey, that's it. That's the end of part one with Allison Hagen. Um, go ahead and head to MontrealSauce.com to find uh, show notes about this episode, links to where you can find Allison online, as well as uh, myself, uh, Chris. Uh, a link to our Patreon, all of that great stuff, uh, ways that you can support the show. It's all uh, there, MontrealSauce.com. And uh, we'll be back next week uh, once again with Allison Hagen. Thanks.